0: garbage filmmaker with his head so far (laughs) up his own ass he can taste colon. Radio-drome. Welcome to another episode of Radiodrome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is the Canadian monkey man, the Peter. I wasn't ready for that. You came at me too early. Too bad. Deal with it. Because the <laughs> Cecil is back this week, so people might actually listen to the show again.
1: I uh, I am very
2: surprised to hear that. <laughs>
0: It, you guys just...
1: should listen to the show if i'm not here it's still good it's just not you know i'm not
2: though welcome back man we did miss you i missed your voice i missed you in general you're fucking awesome i'm glad you're i'm glad you're feeling a bit better
0: your I'm sweet sorry loving about what embrace happened. was was missed thank you
1: thank you i i appreciate that i'm i'm getting there the show must go on
0: as they say good, man well you could good always order something from adam and eve to Dot com to help you a little bit, adamandeve.com. So, you guys go there, you use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. And also, you need a VPN. Especially, we're going to be talking about movies again. That's what we kind of do here. And sometimes, these are movies not available in any kind of streaming service. You have to go to the dark side of the net. And that's when you need a VPN, a virtual private network. So you go to twelve oh one beyondcom dot backslash drome vpn. That'll bring you over to Nord site, Nord VPN where you'll be able to through our link Get 75% off of a three-year plan. That's $3.79 a month for Nord's protection, where they'll encode your data, they'll protect your data, you'll be able to get around region locking, you'll be able to say you're from wherever you want. It's really useful in this day and age. 1201beyond.com backslash Drome VPN. So Cecil, with you being back this week, I did hold this topic because I knew it's one you'd want to talk about, and it's just strange that last week... Peter and I talked about, with Darren, American Zoetrope, which was heavily involved in the New Hollywood movement. And I didn't even intend this to be the next episode. We're going to talk about New Hollywood 2, when the 1990s started that, and it just it dovetails very nicely from last week, even though I didn't intend it to. So this is your topic, Cecil. A little bit of background on New Hollywood, just in case you don't know. New Hollywood was basically ushered in in 1969 by Easy Rider. It was old Hollywood was on its way out. Musicals and these giant, epic Cleopatra-style pieces, and nobody was going to see these anymore. After Easy Rider came out, it was a new ball game, and this is where it was filmmaker-based. It was vision-based. It wasn't based around the stars. It was based around the story. People ate this up until Francis Ford Coppola destroyed the movement in 1982 with One from the Heart which was kind of the end of New Hollywood. Now, a lot of people don't call this era New Hollywood, too, but I think it has all the hallmarks of being it, and that's that, remember that 90s indie boom, where all of a sudden you got Danny Boyle and Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith and Richard Stanley, Jim Jarmusch, Paul Thomas Anderson, Robert Rodriguez, Jeffrey Wright, you had all of these people coming in, it was like New Hollywood all over again, where the indie stuff was the stuff that was making the money. You guys remember this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember when it all started happening, a lot of it was revolving around Sundance, where Sundance was really, uh, I don't know if it was for the first time or for the first time that you got the general audiences to pay attention. It was like, hey, there's all this really great stuff coming out of Sundance. Uh, You know, there's there's Kevin Smith, there's uh, Tarantino. There's uh, Greg Araki, uh Richard Linklater. There's all these people that uh, are making these smaller films that are so much better than the the drivel that was uh, being dripped into theaters. It was exciting. It was new. It was different. It was when I really sat up and paid attention, and you know immediately fell in love with Kevin Smith, who became one of my biggest influences. He was making, I think more so him, but a lot of the people, they were making the films that they wanted to make on a very small budget. And it was uh, it was coming out and being much more interesting and better because it was all about the story and it wasn't about the spectacle.
2: Well, it was a very different time. It was a changing time also with filmmakers. Like We started seeing a lot of very different people coming into the fold. Film festival times were getting a lot more different, particularly with like seeing people like Kevin Smith and and seeing people like this showing up at Sundance and film was evolving. And it really was, I would call it a very interesting time. We were seeing a lot of very different stuff. We were seeing film evolving. We were seeing changes being made to the industry at large. And I would call it very exciting.
0: And see, there were a couple of different things that were happening all at the same time that I think caused New Hollywood 2 to happen. One of those things was the VHS boom. Because obviously that was big in the 80s as people got more and more VCRs, things of that nature. By the early 1990s, a VCR was just a standard object in your home. Everybody had these. Everybody had a VCR. Video store culture, Blockbuster is getting huge. Everybody's going to rent a movie. Some of the studio stuff was still on that nine to 12 month cycle. You know, it's not coming out on video until it's been off theaters for a year because they were still trying to protect their TV sales. Well, a lot of these new Hollywood two movies, these were never going to play on TV. They might play on cable but they're not going to play on TV. So people were renting these like mad, and that's where word of mouth spread. Because like in the first New Hollywood movement, word of mouth would spread through the drive-ins and through the cinemas. Yes. This was spreading through the video stores. And you had all of these magazines. Like, in a way, I'll call this also the film threat era. This is where film threat was super powerful. When you read about one of these movies in film threat, you immediately tried to go and find the VHS of it. Sometimes you could. Oh, it- it, it Sometimes felt, you could. Uh, it
2: felt big seeing an article from them. It was like this. This felt legit. Film
1: Threat was how I found out about the Fantastic Four uh, Roger Corman film.
2: Yeah,
0: and, I remember that cover. Uh,
1: I was at a comic book convention, and of course, the old comic book conventions used to sell a lot of bootlegs. And I bought a copy of uh, a, a bootleg of it for twenty bucks, and I loved it. You know, for as terrible as it was, but uh, still the best Fantastic
0: was, Four movie that's come out so far.
1: Yeah, I, uh. I have to agree. <laughs>
0: In this era, you've got the you got VHS being a giant. You have cable channels starting up like Sundance and IFC that are focusing on this. Because what's different about this era than the New Hollywood 1 is the New Hollywood 1 was an independent voice and style in the studio system. Because almost all those old movies after Easy Rider from New Hollywood 1 were by Warner Brothers and Fox and Universal mm. and places like that. It was... The studios are learning, we need to let the filmmakers just make their films. By the 90s, that wasn't a thing anymore. The bulk of these were independent studios and independent filmmakers that were making more money and getting more word of mouth than all of the big budget Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone and Steven Seagal movies that were coming out from the studios. It was sort of like... Like, the studios didn't learn their lesson the first time around that, hey, we should embrace this. Although, maybe they eventually did, because almost every single one of the filmmakers that came up during this era ended up being a studio filmmaker, just not from the New Hollywood 2 era.
1: Downside to all this, what really is sad, because you had people eschewing the major studios and looking more into the the independent guys... Mm -hmm unfortunately gave rise to miramax and in that aspect, you know in that notion you we got harvey weinstein out of it harvey weinstein. yeah so I, was gonna, cutting,
0: I was gonna say we're cutting we, the shit out of everything we do have to talk about weinstein because miramax is a giant player in this era at this point yeah, yeah in the early early to mid 90s he was just he was ripping through
2: everything
1: so much good independent people got their start distributed through miramax but he ended up just being just such an awful human being and, and taking advantage of, uh, yeah. of a lot of the people that were that worked with him and just taking advantage of his position of power that he just gained
2: decimating a lot of these films he's done awful things obviously to actresses and he's been like this very rapey guy but it's like even before that even before these accusations like he was notorious for just oh just ruining movies harvey scissorhands
0: the one thing i will point out is the bulk of the miramax films that came out in this era were disney films Disney bought the company in 1993, what a lot of people forget about with Reservoir Dogs, The Crow, Pulp Fiction, Clerks, Heavenly Creatures, Four Rooms, Kids, Hardcore Logo, Sling Blade. Those are all Disney films, because Miramax was owned by Disney at that point. It is funny.
1: This kind of ties in with that. But when Kevin Smith was looking to, uh, to do dogma, Miramax wouldn't release it because it was tied to Disney. So that's yeah. why he went and uh, put it out under Lionsgate. And it's just funny that they, they released kids because nobody knew. But then when they found out that they were a subsidiary of Disney, they wouldn't release dogma because it was too
0: religious. The New Hollywood 2 movement, it technically would have two different beginnings depending on where your criteria lands. Now, a mm. lot of people who, like I said, nobody except me really calls this New Hollywood 2, but I just I see the similarities with New Hollywood, and I think it's unavoidable. Right. A lot of people say that this era of the independent film boom all goes back to Woody Allen working within the studio system, and I disagree with that. Leaving all mm. the, the weird sex fetish stuff out from Woody Allen, I can't stand this man's films, and I don't see what some of these other people are seeing. Because some of the critics say that that this era owes so much to Woody Allen because most of the movies from the New Hollywood 2 era are dialogue-based, they're character-based, less there's less plot, it's more dialogue. H- have you guys ever heard that old that old saying within Hollywood if this scene doesn't advance the plot or deepen the characters then it doesn't need to be here, it's an extraneous scene. Most of these movies are all extraneous scenes, like Clerks that entire film is all scenes that would have been cut out of a different film that that would have been deleted scenes and that's sort They're of all where... all great
2: just fantastic scenes in right, Clerks like but, god, well, so, so much
0: great dialogue there. That's that's where the audience had shifted, they, they'd shifted away from Arnold Schwarzenegger, any race and the Antonio Banderas movies and they were wanting more character based movies and dialogue based remember movies. when
2: Antonio Banderas was like a big thing the,
0: the the kind of thing is that's why people are saying that Woody Allen is the grandfather of this era and I totally disagree with that I don't think well, definitely Woody... a grandfather of kids that are too young for him there's
2: that
1: I see I see what they I see what they mean but he's not like the only one that he's the one that kind of made that popular at the time but there are plenty of other directors that did that
0: and and i'm not saying it just because it's where this show gets its namesake look at something like videodrome that is an absolute independent film made for freaking universal you know someone like cronenberg Cronenberg would be the grandfather of this i think All of
2: Cronenberg's films were very independent, though, if you think about it. If you look at all of his movies... But they were all studio films. Only for me to segue into my joke of, now for a joke, I'm a neurotic nerd who likes to sleep with little girls. Hey, that sucked,
0: McBain! What I think is the true beginning of New Hollywood 2, we think of it as a 90s thing, and it really is, but I think the true beginning is 1989, Miramax, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. The movie right. is all character. It's all dialogue or the sex scenes. That, to me, and that film broke huge. That, that movie only cost like a million bucks, and it made like a hundred million at the theater, at the theatrical distribution. Sex, Lies, and Videotape, I think, is where New Hollywood 2 truly started
1: yeah i could see that um it uh, definitely had everybody stand up and pay attention because it's like hey there's this movie that kind of came out of nowhere and all of a sudden blew up and really it's just it's very dialogue driven uh it was unlike a lot of other stuff that was out at the time and it got people to watch things that were a little bit different we were we were kind of getting a lot of the same stuff i would say in a way we're really overdue for uh, a new hollywood three I what to
0: say n- new hollywood the trilogy
1: i don't know if it's it's going to happen though right now because there it are ha- two it almost,
2: uh, it almost happened i feel like because we had directors like Reffin. we had movies like uh was that one gyllenhaal did nightcrawler oh, the... where he no, was like yeah the journalist videographer that was like staging crime crime scene accidents to look a certain way and stuff like i think we almost had a new hollywood three with directors like nicholas Reffin with the guy who did that movies like that. Like we almost had this very artistic, independent directorial style for uh, New Hollywood 3. And then it just, it kind of, it just kind of died out. And then Disney stepped in again. And... Yeah. Disney stepped in and Marvel stepped in. And it's like, we had all these great movies that were coming out. The, the, the Carl Urban Dread, which was, oh, just awesome. Marvel and Disney, they had their merger. They bought out uh, 20th Century Fox. I think nowadays it's like it's it's impossible for that to happen
0: at this point because it's so oh it's so the, corporate now. Well I like, think the distribution in, I... the distribution model has changed. Cause when New Hollywood two happened, like I said, it was the video stores and you still had the yeah. era of the independent video mm-hmm. store. You had the independent film magazines that were talking about this. Now, where are you gonna go? The streaming services? Well, those are all corporate owned. With New Hollywood two, you had certain filmmakers who were really known for this era. It was it's hard to describe if you didn't grow up during this era, but all of these films they had a certain feel to them. Even if you go back and watch watch some of these today, you're like, this feels and I don't mean just like based on hairstyles and stuff, this feels so 1994 independent <laughs> cinema kind of thing. Because right. you, you had certain filmmakers like, obviously Tarantino has a style all to his own. Someone like Jim Jarmusch being able to make Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, that feels <laughs> so 90s but not in a negative way. You've got Paul thomas anderson with hard eight and boogie nights again oh, not in God, a negative yes. way they feel so 90 90- a movie like sling blade there's no way a studio would make a fantastic film like sling blade you've you've got you'd like to eat in there
2: mm-hmm.
0: you've got you've got richard stanley's two miramax films okay you know obviously dust devil we didn't see till years later the correct well, version, they were they but- were
2: cut to they were cut to shit Obviously, like Richard Stanley was not a man for the studios.
0: But but then there's right. also and now I hate this movie, and I'm sick of people trying to elevate it to some sort of a level of genius. But a movie like Kids could only have come out during this era in what 1995. You, you both of
2: you keep mentioning this Kids movie. I don't. Oh, remember you never it. seen
0: Kids was it's um, garbage,
1: almost, pure trash. It's... I. Uh, I don't hate it, but it it's not the kind of movie that you're like, hey, I want to sit down and enjoy a movie. It's like, hey, I, I want to sit. Like,
2: I I really don't remember it at all. The one I remember it... is Jack with Robin Williams. I like
1: that. Oh one. God, no, no, no. This this is it's kids. What it was? It was who's who is the director? Larry who's Clark. like notori- Larry Clark. He's notorious for filming oh. kids doing his one movie is banned in the US cuz it actually didn't have like penetration in it or something oh my but god it's it's very it's it's a story it's shot almost kind of documentary about these two kids that are going around they're doing drugs they're,
2: they're, having they're all sex like with 13, virgins. 14 oh, years old, old but, like
1: they're one one all, those, uh... but they're all like, thir- yeah, they're
2: all like 13. Like it, oh, opens it sounds up. like you just said the age. It sounds like that movie 13, right? It's kind of, but it's oh, like 13 terrible. Was done, awful.
1: 13 was done a little bit more like, like a movie. This is done a little bit more like documentary in 13. There were consequences with 13 where, whereas this, right. it's just, here's these kids. They're being awful people at the end. Like, like the one kid finds out like he, he, uh, this girl, this girl goes to the doctor and she finds out that he has, that she has AIDS and she's trying to tell this guy that she has AIDS, that he needs to go get checked. And then she gets like, she gets drugged and raped and like, it's, it's so it's, it's all these, but it's, it's kind of a story of a bunch of kids that are just doing drugs and having sex. And it's, it's very uncomfortable well it like, sounds like I've uh, never... they were
2: attempting to do like a euro film but they didn't really know what they were doing I, for but some it
0: got reason, all kinds of praise yeah and... for some reason people elevate this movie to some kind of a genius cinema and it's like no like crap y- you sounds like yeah, crap. the movie is pure and utter garbage it's, it's it's the same thing with i guess i can see why people like this man's movies I personally think he's one of the worst filmmakers that's ever made a film and that's Greg Araki I think the man is a complete incompetent hack and the Doom Generation (laughs) is one of the worst films not of just the 1990s of all time but I can see why people would gravitate to someone like Greg Araki I just think he's garbage filmmaker with his head so far (laughs) up his own ass he can taste colon right i don't
1: know i think nowhere is fantastic nowhere is he's is obviously
2: just... had his uh his ups and downs i don't think he's that bad i don't think he's uh... yeah
1: he's he's nowhere he's not like god like the guy who did the last die hard movie oh who like fuck. every movie he's done has been a gigantic pile of garbage is that paul greengrass like, no that wasn't oh paul greengrass is no he's the shaky cam guy who i can't stand oh, who god. also oh, stinks god john moore john moore every movie he's done stinks he kept like he kept getting he did um the remake of the omen he did the max Payne movie he did um just like very bland kind of stuff very like, yeah bland, they, very, they, very they hard.
2: real interest
1: they're just bad movies and yeah kept, like he kept getting bigger and bigger movies and i didn't understand it because each one was terrible but no like he's somebody who stinks i'm <laughs> fine gregor like i'm not going to go out of my way to with the exception of nowhere i'll watch nowhere because that movie is just crazy and, and and you know it's it's a spectacle to be seen i'm not going to go out of my way Way to, to watch um, the Doom generation and stuff he like he's doing his own thing and he's doing these very small films he's not making a giant 200 million dollar tentpole production which like I have a little bit more to say about that when you're a terrible director that's making a giant budget film and you stink I don't understand that but here's a guy who's making these small films for small studios and I don't really see, you know he's making a film obviously somebody wants to see it or he wouldn't he wouldn't have a career you know right, um, but, like, like but Richard also- Linkletter I think is another one who he's making these very small personal films that now he's way like I think he's light years beyond Gregoraki. I mean, I love his stuff. Yes, but
0: also look at something like The Crying Game. The Crying Game comes out; it's one of the biggest films of 1992, and (laughs) nobody saw this movie coming. Nobody nobody
2: saw. I can't help but laugh because like that whole movie was a punchline for Ace, Ace Ventura. That whole movie was a punchline for a lot of things, but yeah, that yeah. was a big.
0: The Crying Game is one of those kinds of movies that kind of comes out of nowhere and was a, a, a slap to Hollywood. No Hollywood studio was going to make a movie like The Crying Game. The, the same it wasn't thing. Good though, it the, was. Uh, if we're really being real, that movie sucked. Kind of liked it. I thought it was a pretty decent film. Now, I, I, I saw Jay, Davidson, was really, was clear, Jay um, Davidson. Jay Davidson. Jay was Davidson was clearly a man the whole dude. time, but it was
2: ham. they really they wanted you to be pissed off at the fact that like there was a trans transvestite and there was a dude with a dick and the guy beats her like i really think they were like trying to pull in the shock gasp kind of crowd with that movie i i don't think it was
0: good i think it was i honestly think that was a film the really weirdo movies that no no hollywood studio would touch lance mungaya's Six-String Samurai, which I think is Mm. one of the best late 80s movies ever made. So good. really. No studio was ever going to make Six-String Samurai. Fantastic.
1: No, but that was kind of the beauty of it, is I love a lot of the movies that no studio would make, because they're not focus-tested. Here's a guy who had a vision. He made a movie about a guy who was traveling to Las Vegas because, you know, Elvis... Uh, Post-apocalypse, post-apocalyptic Elvis who was running things that died, and they were all fighting to be the new king of Las Vegas. And it's just, it's so unique. It's so, it's, it's just well done. And yeah, it's another like if they did it, they would have like more sword fights
0: and CG, and they would be Arnold in the main role. Yeah, you know, (laughs) just it
1: just it wouldn't work, but it works because it's this little, you know, the dude kind of looks like Buddy Holly,
0: which is intentional
1: which I know was intentional, but I'm saying, you know, he's not the person you would expect to to be doing this. And it's such a unique, different movie. I, I like that. I like, we, that's one thing that I think is missing nowadays where we're not getting these, these risky films. At least we're not getting them out of the U S or if we do get them, they're really bad. Like they just, we're not, they're... Getting,
2: uh, we're not getting a lot of unironic stuff. And this is something that I felt when I was watching, um, Well, I didn't get to see it live, but Joe Bob drive in Joe Bob's drive in with deadbeat at dawn. And I was like, that's one of my favorite movies ever. I love that film. There's so many unironic moments in that. It's like he's doing nunchucks in a graveyard and throwing throwing stars at, uh, like, like Ninja Stars in a tree and shit. And it's like, there's no comedy to that. He's just doing it for the sake of like being a badass. And it's like, there's no punchline. There's no jokes. We need more of that. We need more of just like film a scene for the sake of the importance of it. You don't need to make a joke. If it ends up being funny, it might be funny. You don't need to have this insecurity of chucklehead fucking humor directly in front of the camera. Shit. Just film it. Just do it. Just film the scene.
0: There's also something where, even in this same era where you've got Tarantino and Kevin Smith, and you've got Peter Jackson making Heavenly Creatures and that, you also have this weird... Now, I love this movie, but this is kind of an outlier in the New Hollywood 2 movement, and that's The Crow. And I don't mean this in a demeaning way. It feels more like a studio film. It doesn't feel as like an indie film as all of the other things Miramax was putting out at the time. And I don't want to go into too much detail on everything that happened with The Crow, because I do want to do a Crow retrospective soon, but that movie doesn't feel like it should fit in with this, but it does. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? I don't
1: know, I just... I disagree with you. I think it it has it has a style that was very different that the studios then co-opted. We got movies later that were studio productions that were trying to be the crow. But the mm. crow was really the one that did that. So I think now maybe looking at it in hindsight, you, you know, you could be seeing all this stuff that came because of that. But really, there wasn't anything. That's one of the like the, the crow, sadly, was huge for two reasons. Number one, it was sad because it got all the recognition because Brandon Lee died. And it also got the recognition because it was such a breath of fresh air. It was so different from all the other things that were out at the time. So I think that uh, those were the the things that really made it blow up. And then the studio movies, you know, they they saw that and then they just made their versions.
0: I I don't know how I feel about this, because I love the film, but I also see why no studio would touch it. At the same time, you were on your sabbatical, Cecil, but Peter and I talked about what an absolute garbage person Abel Ferrara is. Something like Bad Lieutenant. The 1992 film, and I'm only talking the uncut one. That R-rated cut is unwatchable because half the freaking movie's gone.
2: What
1: I mean is, Wanaka tells. Oh, it's
2: great. Bad Lieutenant is amazing. Like that performance is. Oh, it's unlimited. It's top tier. Like, God, I, I honestly, he he really like he took that. He went all he, in he on took it.
0: That performance to the mountain—it was great. I'm not sure because I, don't I agree, know, I mean, I agree I was... with you. I agree with you, Peter. Keitel is amazing in that. But the fact that Christopher Walken turned down that role two weeks before filming, after deciding that he wasn't right for the part—I wonder. He still if the that...
2: king of New York, though.
0: But I just wonder if yeah. Walken would have would have made that movie no. better or worse. No, no,
2: I don't no. think so. I think Keitel was perfect for that. Particularly that, because there's that like there's the naked scene where he's like doing crack or heroin or whatever where he I think it's trips cr- down and everything. I think Kaitel was the perfect demeanor for bad Lieutenant. I, I don't think anybody could have made that role better. And then for King of New York, that was more Watkins film like that was perfect for him as far as the scenes the scenes that had to happen for that movie was just absolutely brilliant. Him to do, and then Kaitel with the it was like guys cock.
1: I kind of look at it from the perspective of now. This happened a little bit differently, but what happened with Back to the Future, where yes. uh, Eric Stoltz came on board. And they realized he was wrong and he left. And then they got Michael J. Fox, who was. Yeah, just filming, they,
2: they felt like, like half the movie with Because
1: you wonder. You wonder how it would. have. Now, that's a case of where you wonder how it would have been. But then you actually were able to see some of the scenes and you're like, yeah, it doesn't work with Stoltz, but it totally works with Michael <laughs> J. Fox. That's not saying that Mike that Stoltz is a bad actor. Stoltz is a very good actor, but he just wasn't right for that part. And that's the same right. thing with this, where I think that Walken is great. But he would not have delivered the the right performance for this, well, like, there's
2: something about kaitel. there's like a certain tough guy aspect there's a certain like playing a rough and tough hooked on drugs cop.
0: he also gives a made, real vulnerability Keitel to work.
2: he gives a real vulnerability
0: to the lieutenant too
2: he does there's there's something that really works about kaitel in that movie, and like. Even just now, picturing as as like hard as I can with like all of my brain capacity, which th- there's not a lot of it left because of all the liquor, I'm tr- trying to think of
0: like how Walken would fit into that movie. Doesn't work. But you know, Walken thought that too because he, he he had the role, and then he was yeah. just right before filming. He was like, "Able, I I don't think I I don't think I can do this." That's because Walken
2: Walken's an intelligent like smart guy like he knows what works and what doesn't he really does like i love him as a filmmaker i really do but holy christ when you hear him in interviews when you hear him talk about stuff it's like he's got a lot of
0: problems he's a garbage person as a person he's got issues man he really does i mean if you remember from that
2: he's like god he really is one of those dudes he could really bring out the inner grime, the inner seediness of New York City, and it was so great to see it. And a lot of his movies, like you know, as far as the Driller Killer goes, even even movies like Fear City. God, his movies looked so good. There's something, there's just something off about him. And it's like, you can tell because of that, because of that reputation, he never made it to the top tier of people like Martin Scorsese. And it's not because of the quality of his films, because of the quality of his personality. Honestly, it's because of who he was. It's because of the shit he said on talk shows. The guy was trouble to work with, unfortunately. And that's just, oh, Jesus it's it's it sucks because I love his movies so much because but he really
0: does just seem like ah oh, Justin Asshole. Okay, to to describe Ferrara's style, a pretentious film critic once wrote. This was about Driller Killer. The Driller Killer is almost the very definition of sleaze. Few films are able to radiate such intensity solely on their visuals. You can almost feel the dirt and grime of the streets and clubs in the images themselves, drenched in darkness with a wet sheen to everything, and you can very nearly smell the stale urine and dried sex in every frame of film. <laughs> And I was that film critic. I wrote that. <laughs> so that, that, was in, that was in my piece for Night Flight on Driller Killer. But am I wrong?
1: No, no you're not. It's, it's a shame. There are a lot of... Uh, I don't know that much about him personally, but it is always a shame when uh, you see someone who... Uh, like, they have talent, and then you find out that they just suck.
0: I don't consider this part of New Hollywood, although it would be part of this movement. But we're coming from like film school in Canada, something like Cube in '97. It fits into this era, but it's oh, obviously Cube not Hollywood. And Cube is Cube a great is movie. Such a Cube movie! God it's brilliant. Too it really bad Zero smart. and Two blow ass, but th- well, that's a yeah, different discussion.
1: Well, that was. Sucked. They wanted, you know, I mean, you, you can't, there are certain things that you can follow up on. Like there's, you, you really like, you can't recapture that, you know? It's like yeah. trying to do the same thing again. You just, you can't. I mean, it was too different.
2: The movie where it's like the opening scene is a guy that goes through like a laser grid thing that cuts him just into, into like chicken meat. It's like, then we go on from the story. And these people Mm -hmm. trying to get through level to level of, like, it was the prototype for movies like
0: Saw, and it did it so much better. I'm not going to consider New Hollywood 2, because like, that was literally a student film from Canada. So it's not the same kind of mentality of a Tarantino, a Kevin Smith, a Billy Bob Thornton, that kind of thing. But I do want to talk about one of probably the greatest filmmakers that came out of this era. People know his name, but they forget he was part of New Hollywood 2, because everyone knows Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino, yes. Paul Thomas Anderson, well, well, yeah, of course. Danny Boyle. There was... Robert Rodriguez. Now, I wouldn't say El Mariachi was part of this. That sort of predates it, and that is a true just, you know, film by the seat of your pants kind of thing. Rodriguez, when, you know, Desperado, and then From well, Dust he got, Till Dawn. He got Desperado because of El Mariachi. Right, well, yeah. but I, I'm just saying El
1: Mariachi, that, I don't consider got
0: him. Uh, that's what got him noticed. But mm-hmm. I would even call From Dust Till Dawn a kind of new Hollywood film, really.
1: Yeah, because it was a small production. Like people don't realize. George Clooney was like nobody, really. Oh, no, time. he was actually pretty huge from ER. He was still the, uh, ER. Was, was
0: still the was, ER, did ER start? Yeah, it, yeah. Like, ER'd been out for about four years, and that's actually where Tarantino had met him, because Tarantino, cause Tarantino had, directed had directed an ER him. episode. That's how they became friends, and he talked him into doing From Dusk Till Dawn. So okay. ER is yeah, directly right, responsible he wasn't, for this.
2: He, would not, um,
0: he, he wouldn't wasn't have been a, a, star, a leading yet. man. Yeah, he if wasn't a movie star. He was a TV star. That's kind he of what I'm saying. Been
2: like, the, the leading man that he is today, if not for Rodriguez and Tarantino, like I think they really helped him get that push. But he wasn't. That's
1: the thing. He wasn't like, you know, the leading man yet. He was like because there was still the t- at the time in the 90s, there was still a very definite difference between you were a TV star. You were a movie star. Yeah, like there weren't like if you were a movie star and then you start doing television, that's like a step down but yes. now if you're it was a movie like, star it was like
2: tarnishing uh tarnishing your reputation pretty much
1: right it's like oh god you must be doing really bad if he's doing television yes but now there's not really that distinction anymore a lot of times you if you are a uh, like like um what's his name uh brian cranston who uh was in breaking bad th- like he got Huge amounts of respect for that. And then, you know, uh, was able to kind of go back and forth and do movies and television, whereas that wasn't really a thing. It was back in the 90s. You did one or the other. Or if you, you know, if you were successful enough, you could do a David um, Caruso and go from television to movies But unless but if you were a failure, you were seen as a failure if you went from movies and went back to television.
0: Mel Gibson had that that quote back from the 90s. When a movie actor does television, it proves they weren't good enough to be in the movies. You know, like television had this sort of stigma of, well, that's 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 the junior league. Well, at the time, it was true
1: because there were limitations on television. Like now that we've got like HBO and all the other ones that are basically making these movie quality television shows uh i never really watched it but um game of thrones like that sort of stuff you know on par movie level quality as far as like writing and and back uh, then a tv show didn't
0: cost a hundred million dollars a season
1: but that's what i'm saying so back then if you went back to do you know if you were in movies then you went back to doing television that's why it was seen as such a negative but now it's you know television is as big if not bigger than movies because of the fact that you know you're going to have people talking about these shows go you know going on for uh i mean look at something stupid like well i mean this is a benefit of the time but like tiger king like everybody's <laughs> trapped indoors so they're watching tiger king
2: and that guy show about scumbags essentially you got yeah, people show, that are like glorifying a yeah, show about people. awful
1: people they're that all are,
2: awful criminals just
0: fucking terrible awful people But then somebody like Robert Rodriguez, and if you've ever watched on the DVDs, they always have his 10-minute film school segments. This is a guy who didn't think like a normal even an independent filmmaker, because you have Tarantino who is going to set up a shot in a certain way. You have Kevin Smith who's going to set up a shot in a certain way. You have Richard Stanley who's going to set up a shot in a certain way. You have Robert Rodriguez come in going, nah, we can do this way more efficient. He was sort of a a breath of, a real breath of
2: fresh air, I think. Well, I think all the guys you mentioned there, they all had their own ways of doing doing things, except maybe besides Kevin Smith. Like, he never considered himself a director, but if you do look at Stan and all these other people in comparison to rodriguez they were all very salt of their own earth there was a very difference in a lot of
0: they have their style
2: yes they really did
0: they have their style but they're still shooting things in a relatively conventional way well we need the setup we need the over the shoulder whereas rodriguez would come in and, and be like okay i want this shot now stop your dialogue and just <laughs> right in the middle of the scene, I'm going to move over here because in his head, he was editing the movie. So he was able to be like, we don't need these extra, t- these extra setups because well, I know really exactly what I want.
2: This, um, he really had an incredible aesthetic to him. But I'm just saying that of the guys you mentioned, like, you know, Richard Stanley was like that, too. Like a, a lot of these other directors that you're mentioning very much in in the same sort of capacity and it's so great that Rodriguez made it into the Hollywood fold and was able to make all these big movies because a lot of these other directors they deserve that push too. You know, Stan Lee, well, Kevin Stanley, Kevin Smith, not so much because like he really didn't have that much of a notable style. But it's like Stanley absolutely deserved to be in the Hollywood fold. Even guys like uh, Jim Van Beber who was friends with Stanley and it's like, but Rodriguez ended up in that fold. He ended up becoming one of these big directors and he really did have, as you said, like a lot of those unconventional directing styles and it's
3: so
1: awesome. He was a maverick at a time. There weren't weren't any mavericks. They were still, kind of following a certain thing and he had his own vision like when you look at his stuff especially his earlier stuff it has a very very distinct style that is very Rodriguez Oh, because he had so much control I mean if you watch like uh, once upon a time in Mexico it opens up with produced edited uh, directed cinematographer
0: like, he, you cinematogra- know, like, like everything did,
1: like he had his fingers in every single aspect of the production and a lot of people like they don't do that they'll rely and i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that but it's just that that lends so much more to his particular vision that it's all coming back to him
2: well yeah he had this style that was all his own and a lot of stuff that he was doing just on his own by himself directing producing writing staging the shots doing like all this all this
0: and it was so good like he he was fantastic but then I want to talk about one last filmmaker here who I think kind of comes out of New Hollywood, but absolutely does not. And that is, it's a foreign filmmaker whose style and films were only discovered on a mainstream level because of New Hollywood 2. And that's John Woo. I think without, <laughs> with no, no, seriously, hear me out here. Okay, he'd been making the films in Hong Kong. And they had limited distribution over here every now and then. Maybe you'd see one. I'm like, I remember when Joe Bob showed A Better Tomorrow and The Killer on drive-in theater once. So occasionally, you'd see a John Woo movie on pay cable. And that's it. I think if it wasn't for Tarantino and Rodriguez and Stanley and Smith, those John Woo movies coming over here on VHS, it really fits the aesthetic of New Hollywood too, even though it's literally not Hollywood. It's freaking Hong Kong.
1: I had to. I, I forget who was talking. It might have been Tarantino. He was talking about John Woo. Some and I actually uh, ha, I paid forty dollars to import the killer. You know, you're not going to go to Blockbuster and be able to rent that. So uh, I paid to to import it, and it was awesome. It was amazing. Now, granted, I had already seen Not a Better Tomorrow.
0: Hard-boiled? Uh,
1: but hard, hard-boiled. I had already seen Hard-boiled and loved it, but the killer wasn't anywhere so i had to import it and uh yeah it just had a it had a very distinct unique style that was unlike uh, everything that else out there as far as action films
0: do you agree with me that the aesthetic of those john Woo movies coming over to america absolutely fit into new hollywood too
1: it did and it influenced because then how many people ripped off that style
2: well john wu Woo... I believe, shaped the action industry, not only what it became in the late 90s and early 2000s, but what it is now, that very like raw, yet at the same time, very choreographed, in-your-face kind of style, John Woo really shaped what we're seeing right now in action at large. Like, that guy deserves a load of credit.
0: But then, I guess the final question about New Hollywood 2 is, Obviously each all, all these movements within filmmaking end at some point. I don't think New Hollywood 2 had a definite, well, that's over with like the first <laughs> New Hollywood did with One from the Heart was, yeah, we're done. That th- that's the end of this thing. I don't think this one so much had a definite end as it just sort of petered out for the reason almost every single one of the filmmakers who came up in New Hollywood, even foreigners like John Woo, ended up going to mainstream Hollywood, and then they started making 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar films. In a way, Hollywood swallowed up this movement just as it did in the first case. And It did. What does that say, that you have all these literal independent voices who, with the exception of maybe Richard Stanley, are all studio filmmakers now? They're all contracted to Warner Brothers or Disney or Fox or something like that. What does that say about a movement like New Hollywood 2? Well, it just shows that
2: they made their way up the ladder, and in some cases it was not a good thing, because obviously they were stripped of a lot of their creative liberties. It shows that they succeeded. It shows that John Woo succeeded. It shows that a lot of these other directors did as well. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. It shows that they had success in what they did. But it's just the entertainment industry. When something is hot, when the pulse of something is scorching hot and the studios see it, they pick it up, they pluck it up, they throw it in and force feed it to the audience. That's just what happens. Sometimes it's not the best it's not the best finale for a director, but it's like, obviously, you know, I, I'm 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 sure John Woo is not complaining about the fact that he's getting paid a lot more nowadays. And, you know, he got to do one of the Mission Impossible movies and, and, and stuff like that. But at the same time, does strip the filmmaker of a lot of their what originally got them put on the map, which is a lot of their original creativities, which is what these uh, studios tend to do is they tend to tend to strip them down to the bone and tell them what they can or can't do. And that is what seems to happen as far as a a, a situation such as this.
0: Well, you also have the aspect that Hollywood, especially with someone like John Woo, they were afraid. We don't know if this guy can handle a studio film. Remember, that's why Sam Raimi was the backup director on Hard Target. Because the studio was like, We don't know if this John Woo guy can do it. So Sam, you vouched for him. If he screws it up, you're taking over this production. That's why Sam Raimi is sort of the understudy on Hard Target because the studio, they didn't know if John Woo could do a studio film. Because when you look at something like The Faculty, I don't see, you can like the movie all you want. I don't see Rodriguez in that at all. I see not a single Rodriguez touch in that. The Faculty feels like a studio film. It feels like no, a the generic the studio filmmaker could have made this movie.
2: Yeah, no, but yeah, but the there Robert Patrick, there. Robert Patrick as a Cthulhu is so good.
1: But so. what I'm saying is that I think that the majority, uh, like some of them, were lucky enough that they, like, they kind of got pulled into the system and are now making whatever they want. You've got Tarantino making whatever he wants. You got um, Rodriguez, who I think is still kind of doing whatever he wants. Um, But then you've got Sam Raimi, who wasn't part of that. But I think he kind of like he came before that, but he kind of got sucked up into this. And I grandfathered in grandfathered in. Yeah. But it's like I feel this like I still love Sam Raimi. But I mean, if you look at something like the Evil Dead and then you look at Oz, it's like what are you doing like but, why but, but, would
0: you but Cecil that I, I agree with that but at the same time but while the whole new Hollywood 2 thing is happening Sam Raimi's making Dark Man. you know that's not really the same kind of movie is it no it. but so that,
1: that has his style awesome. all, all over
0: Oh, it. No, I'm not saying it doesn't have his style but it also has a very studio style to it as well it doesn't feel like it would fit into new Hollywood because it wasn't so right
1: it- it's polished in his particular style, though. Like if you look at it, like if you watch Darkman and then watch something like uh, the, the any of the Marvel films, it, it is so it's like, OK, it, it does feel like a different animal.
0: What, what do you think was the long term fallout? of New Hollywood 2. Do you think that this is something that really changed everything? Or, like New Hollywood 1, really changed everything for a little while? Because it seems like anytime we have one of these things, mainstream Hollywood swallows it up, sanitizes it, throws it through a -a blandatron, and just spits it back out. Do you think it really made a difference? Or it only gave us some great filmmakers down the line?
2: what happens with every generation not a lot really changed every generation of filmmaking you've got like your art films you got your blockbuster films you got your like mid-range films it's not so much what we see nowadays obviously with the lack of the video stores there's not a lot of uh, middle ground middle class filmmaking it's it's mainly just big and low class i just think it's it's something it's a very pendulum shifting Nowadays, I, I think things are a lot more nihilistic at this point. People are willing to either be super supportive of something or be super cynical of something, but I really just see it as Hollywood is Hollywood. They're going to do what they're going to do. They're going to make what they're going to make, whether you like it or not, and you've always got the choice of independent cinema, which nowadays is actually really booming. Like we've We've actually got a lot of really great horror films coming out of the indies we've got a lot of great action films coming out of the indies like if you don't like what hollywood is doing you do have a choice you do have an option to go somewhere else and focus on something else and i i'm not sure where i'm going with this rant but it's like it's it's kind of what i feel like and what i've felt like for the last probably 10 or 15 years is that you don't need to rely on hollywood to get the types of films that you want to see there. There are a lot of ventures out there that are doing some far superior stuff that you could check out that you could be checking out that uh, Hollywood isn't tackling.
1: We did get a lot of good that came out of this. Like it gave a lot of very talented act or directors their future. They were able to uh, kind of continue uh, doing what they loved. Uh, but unfortunately uh, Hollywood, as they usually tend to do, they took A lot of this and just absorbed it they didn't really learn from it they just said okay well this is a commodity that we can buy up they you know bought up a bunch of the directors and whatnot and just told them to do their style for them instead of uh, doing it independently and then things went back to normal i think um uh, or should say normal for the studios uh so i think that um it was good and it lasted for a little while But it kind of petered out because uh, they weren't really giving them a lot of the leverage that they had while they were working on independence. You had some that were able to continue to make what they wanted, but then you have others that just got absorbed. And uh, it's a shame. So I would love for there to be another break because I think we're really overdue for it. Because right now it's getting increasingly bland at the movies like, uh, 2019, I was depressed Uh, 2018. Really? I'm sorry. 2018, uh, with just how much mediocrity was out there, these gigantic movies that made a billion dollars that were completely forgettable. And, uh, and I'm all for, a big entertaining film. Like if something is big and dumb and explodey and like fun, but there are a lot of movies that are that, but you still remember them. And right now we're getting a lot of films that are just these big giant spectacles that you you they don't leave you with any value you just instantly forget about them and marvel. Uh, the the marvel films but yeah like i think we're in the era of i i i kind of coined this i don't i think i coined this but the disposable blockbuster we get these movies uh <laughs> like the lion the lion king or the the aladdin remake they come along they make a billion dollars and then a week later no one's talking about no them. no one
2: gives a shit. no one remembers yeah, yeah no, no one, one remembers
1: nobody cares Yeah. It's just, it's there. It makes a lot of money and then nothing. You know, we used to have times where we would have a movie would come along, would make a shit ton of money and would kind of enter the cultural zeitgeist. You get people making memes and jokes and quotes and spoofs and everything. And now it's just kind of there makes a lot of money and then gone.
0: And there's one other aspect of the new Hollywood too, that we didn't really touch on how the established Indies were not part of this. You didn't see any trauma movies from the new Hollywood 2. No full moon movies from the new Hollywood 2. Isn't it kind of weird that the established indies were the ones who also were afraid of any kind of change or anything different? Whether we get a new Hollywood 3 or not is debatable, because I don't know if with the streaming distribution model, I don't know if a film on Hulu or on Tubi or on Netflix could really be this kind of thing. Guys, I want to know what you think of the new Hollywood 2 movement, or whether we were just sucking our own dicks for the last hour. So on that note, where can people contact The Cecil now that he's back on the interwebs?
1: If you want to uh, send me some some nice uh, heartwarming messages, I am over at uh, goodbadflix.com, as well as GoodBadFlix on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com.
0: And Peter, where can people contact the drunken Canadian? Find me at Zinematica at Twitter
2: yelling at the sky. No longer Facebook. I deactivated my Facebook account other than Messenger, so you can find me at Patreon at Zinematica and YouTube, The Cinematicist.
0: And you can contact me at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And remember, 1201beyond.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
1: Production. Find it and other great content at twelve o one beyondcom